Good morning. Let me add my welcome to Shane's and invite you to turn with me to John chapter 5. We are continuing in our study of John's gospel this morning. As we said earlier, John provides us a thematic look at the life of Jesus as opposed to more of a chronological look which the other gospel writers focus on. So as we've been going through each one of the chapters, we're looking to discern the themes of these chapters. And it's not easy. There are a lot of verses in each of these chapters. But as we come to chapter 5 this morning, we return to a theme that we've seen already a couple of times. It's the theme of water. Not french fries. I wish it were french fries, but, but it's, it's water. This is actually the third time we've seen it show up in our study of John thus far. You may remember the first time we encountered it was when Jesus uh, performed his first miracle in John chapter 2. That was the transformation of ordinary water into vintage wine. And we note that Jesus used stone uh, stone water jars, which were used for the Jewish purification rites. That's important. Secondly, we encountered water last week in John chapter 4 at the well of Jacob in Sychar. Jesus meets a woman who comes to draw water at the well because she's thirsty. And in this morning, we'll encounter water once again at the pool of Bethesda inside Jerusalem. Here, Jesus encounters an invalid who is looking for healing at this pool. What did these three stories about water have in common? I think they are reminders that we often look to the wrong things to bring us salvation. The water in those purification jars can never truly cleanse us. The water in Jacob's well can never truly satisfy us. The water in the pool of Bethesda can never truly heal us. There is only one who can ever cleanse us from our sin. There is only one who can ever satisfy our thirst. There is only one who can ever heal us of our brokenness. It's Jesus. It's only Jesus. And as we'll see this morning, Jesus not only longs to heal us of our brokenness, but He longs to give us rest. Sabbath rest. For that, let's turn now to John chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, an Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, He said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I am going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, 
Take up your bed and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to this, your word, as helpless as this lame man. We need your help to understand, and more importantly, to apply this word to our life, to where we are. And so by your Holy Spirit, would you speak to us now through this word? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Just give me one more. Just one more. That was the prayer of private first class Desmond Doss. Originally from Lynchburg, Doss signed up to serve in the army as a combat medic in World War II. As a conscientious objector, he refused to work on the Sabbath or carry a weapon. That decision made him the object of scorn and ridicule from his platoon. Many of them called him a coward. That all changed, however, in the Battle of Okinawa. Doss and his men were sent there to take Hacksaw Ridge from the Japanese. The fighting was intense and Doss's platoon sustained heavy losses. They were, refor- they were forced to retreat down the ridge. Everyone escaped except Desmond Doss. Unbeknownst to anyone, he remained behind to try and to save the wounded. And during the cover of night, he single-handedly saved 75 of his injured soldiers. He lowered each man by a rope down the ridge to awaiting medics. And each time he brought the rope back up, he prayed to the Lord, just one more. Let me save just one more. He was heralded a hero by the very men who had called him a coward only months earlier. The pivotal scene comes when Sergeant Howell tells Doss that the platoon has to go back and take the ridge. They didn't want to go without their hero because they knew they'd be going on the Sabbath day. They knew that he didn't work on the Sabbath. What was Doss to do? Given the importance of the mission and his desire to save lives, he went with his men. On that Sabbath day, he continued to save lives and he was even injured himself. His was a harrowing story of bravery, compassion, and conviction. For Doss, the Sabbath had, had always meant a day of worship and rest from work, a kind of ceasefire from the ordinary labors of life. And yet that particular day, he also understood that that day included acts of compassion and mercy as well. As the Lord of the Sabbath, Jesus knew exactly what the Sabbath day was for as well. He knew that it was for worship and rest from work. And yet there was a work he took on that was not only needed, but appropriate for the Sabbath. That work was providing compassion and mercy to those who were in need. The healing miracle that we see at the Pool of Bethesda is really the first of many miracles that Jesus will 
perform on the Sabbath. But this miracle isn't just about Jesus working on the Sabbath, as we read in verse 17. But rather, it's much more. Jesus is actually working for the Sabbath. We might even say that He is fighting for the Sabbath. Why did He have to work for or fight for the Sabbath? Well, because there were those who sought to rob the Sabbath, who sought to hijack the Sabbath for their own cultural purposes, who were stuck thinking that the Sabbath was a law to legislate rather than a gift to be received, something to control behavior versus to conform hearts. The Sabbath miracle wasn't just a gift to this lame man. It's a gift to us as well. How do we see that? Well, I think the first gift that we receive So we receive a Sabbath foretaste. Just like an appetizer gives us a sense of what we can expect in the main meal, or just like the first fruits of a crop can let us know something about the crop that that will come later, a Sabbath foretaste gives us a sense of what to expect from the eternal Sabbath. The healing of the lame man at the pool of Bethesda is a Sabbath foretaste of restoration of having our bodies, our minds, our emotions, and yes, even our souls be restored and made new. Those who lined the large pool complex in Jerusalem certainly longed for that. Located near the Sheep Gate, the the pool was given the name Bethesda. And that was an Aramaic name which meant House of Mercy. That's a fitting name given the desperate need of those who surrounded that pool. I suppose the pool might be something like our, the Mayo Clinic or St. Jude's Hospital for Children. These medical facilities for those who have exhausted all other hope. A last stop place for a medical miracle. If they can't cure you, then who else can? This pool was a, last, a place of last resort. A place for those with non-curable conditions like blindness and lameness and paralysis. A place for them to come and possibly find healing. How could this pool provide such a healing? What happened in the pool that could restore what the fall had taken away? Well, the answer is found in verse 7. John says, from time to time, the water in the pool would be stirred up. And whoever got in first would experience healing. Verse 4 adds that the stirring was thought to have been done by an angel. Now, you may have noticed that in the ESV, verse 4 is omitted from the text. You'll only find it listed as a footnote. Now, why is it just a footnote, you wonder? Well, as is sometimes the case, the earliest manuscripts didn't include this part, which meant that it was added a little later as explanation. So while this verse may not be considered part of the text, it is safe to say that the people believed something like this had indeed occurred. And one of the invalids waiting to be healed was a man who had been lame for 38 years. Consider for a moment what this man has missed out on in life. Whatever promised he might have shown earlier in his life, that's now a faded memory. Whatever skills he had picked up in life were lost without the use of his legs. He's also alone in life. Verse 7 We read that he has no one to help him get into the water to be healed. 
his fellow invalids offer little relationship or comfort as they vie to get into the pool themselves. He is surrounded by people, but he is alone. As Jesus enters the room and he surveys the misery of so many, he locks eyes on this lame man of 38 years. John says Jesus knows that this invalid has been lame for a long time. How we know, we're not sure, but he knows. What made him focus on this particular man? Was it compassion for the loss of those 38 years of mobility? Was it the the fact that he had been waiting by the pool for a really long time? Or is it something else altogether? The question that Jesus asks him leads me to think that it might have been something else. Did you notice the question that Jesus asks him in verse 6? Do you want to be healed? Now, if we didn't know any better, we might think that Jesus is quite imperceptive here. This man has been lame for 38 years. He's at a pool where people go to find healing. That's like showing up at a hospital and visiting a patient and asking him, do you want to be healed? Of course they want to be healed. They're in a hospital where sick people get well. Could Jesus be that dense? Could he be that insensitive? I don't think so. Then why is Jesus asking this obvious question? I think it's entirely possible that there was a chance this man wasn't sure he wanted to be healed. J.A. Finley tells us that in the Middle East and in some places today, a man who was healed would lose a good living. So in fact, there are invalids whose situations are preferable. As the crippled man lay by the pool of Bethesda, he was surrounded by misery and sorrow. But if the man looked out from those shaded porticos, he saw men and women out in the sun carrying their burdens and working. He knew that if he were healed, his life would take on much larger responsibility. If that's true of this invalid, then the question seems a little more relevant, doesn't it? Are you really interested in getting well? Or do you love your misery more? Now that may sound like a cold-hearted question, but isn't that sometimes true for us? Think about a time when you were really wronged. Someone close to you injured you with their words or they injured you by their actions or their inactions. They deeply wounded you and you find yourself wanting to make them pay. To make them pay for what they've done to you. And you use any number of tactics to make them feel the the pain that you felt. You ice them out with your silence. Or you burn them with your words. You allow those wounds to begin to fester. You let them go untreated so that it is allowed to become full-on bitterness. You hang on to it. Because in a sick way, it makes you feel good. It makes you feel in control. You don't want to forgive. You don't want to be healed. And even if we want to be healed, we can often look for healing in the wrong places. We can go to any number of pools looking for healing, looking for something or someone to save us from our brokenness, to save us from our misery, to save us from our emptiness. Some of us look to retail therapy to bring healing to our broken hearts. I distinctly remember as a single young man purchasing a stereo 
after a hard breakup, thinking that that stereo is going to fill that void. It's going to really bring healing to my heart. And it did for a moment. And then the moment passed, and I was left with a credit card bill and a broken heart still. Some of us look to food therapy to bring healing to our disillusioned heart. We treat ourselves to that gallon of ice cream or that bag of Oreo cookies or that big thing of french fries. We look to that good feeling we get when we bite into that food. We look to it to save us from a demanding boss or or unfulfilling work. And it does for a moment. And the moment is gone. But the calories remain behind. Some of us look to electronic therapy to bring healing to our relationally frustrated hearts. We mindlessly log on to our computers in the hopes that something like pornography will heal us from our incompetencies or our frustrated desires. We look to a fantasy life to excite our ordinary life, and yet it not only disappoints us, it actually enslaves us. It doesn't bring healing. It destroys Jesus asks the man, do you want to be healed? He asks us that same question this morning. I think Jesus' question really cut this man to the quick. He responds to Jesus' question in verse 7. He says, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I am going, another steps down before me. He's saying, I don't have what it takes to be healed. I don't have the power to get into the water. I don't have anyone to help me. I don't have the speed to which I need to get down those steps when the water begins to be stirred. I am helpless and I am hopeless. What a wonderful confession. That is precisely what Jesus wanted from this man. And it's what He wants from us as well. To confess our need for healing to confess all the ways that we have sought to be our own saviors. It is then that Jesus often does His greatest work. Jesus wastes no time and commands the man to get up, take your bed, and walk. What thrilling words to hear from such an unexpected source. And John tells us that at that moment, this man is healed. Feeling and strength began to course through his body so that his legs were strong enough to stand up and he rolled his bed up and he walked. What must that scene have looked like after 38 years of being lame and now walking out? So how is this man's healing a Sabbath foretaste? Well, we read later on when the religious leaders confront Jesus over his Sabbath healing, he said, they say to him, or he says to them in verse 21, referring to this healing that he does, for as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. Now the word for raise the dead here, which is uh, igeri, is the same word Jesus uses to command the invalid to get up. Jesus connects the two. The power of God that raised Jesus from the dead is also the same power that Jesus Himself uses to raise us up from sin and despair and defeat. 
The resurrection is our Sabbath hope. Jesus went to the cross to not only pay the penalty of sin in our life, He went to the cross that He might defeat the power of sin in our life. That He might defeat every last effect that sin has had in our lives. The ill temper, the perverted desires, the physical sickness, yes, even death itself. The power of sin was broken on the cross so that the power of the resurrection might secure our Sabbath rest. This is what awaits those of us who are in Christ Jesus, who have cried out to Him in their need, who in their spiritual paralysis have called on Jesus to save them, to save them from the penalty and power of their sin, but even more for those who wait with great hope for the glorious day when He will remove the presence of sin once and for all. Then it will be defeated. On that day, we will know Sabbath rest completely, wholly, fully. Is it any wonder why Christians change the Sabbath day from Saturday to Sunday? When Jesus came out of the tomb on that first day of the Jewish week, which was Sunday, it changed everything. It was the dawning of an eternal Sabbath, a Sabbath rest that you and I have a foretaste of now, but will know in full. When Jesus comes again. This is the work that Jesus came to do. This is the work that He is doing even now through the Holy Spirit in your life and in my life. He is working for the Sabbath for you and for me. But not only does He give us a Sabbath foretaste, but we also get a Sabbath reorientation. The invalids at the pool of Bethesda aren't the only invalids in our text. There is another group of people that we might also label as invalids. They're not physically uh, invalids, but they are spiritual invalids. They were as blind spiritually as the blind around that pool were physically. Who am I talking about? I'm talking about the religious leaders. It's not hard to see their blindness. Observe their conversation with this now healed man in verse 10. As the man is going home with his bedroll on his shoulder, he is stopped. The religious leaders tell him that he is breaking the Sabbath law by walking around on the Sabbath with his bedroll. Now, notice their response when he tells them that he has just been healed. It wasn't. That's fantastic. What wonderful news. Praise God for His healing. Now, their response was to find out Who broke the law by healing you on the Sabbath day? They didn't see this healing as a sign of God's grace. They saw it as a threat. (laughs) They missed the miracle. They missed the sign. They missed the Sabbath foretaste. What was the law regarding the Sabbath? What did God say to Moses about the Sabbath? Well, we are told in Exodus 28 through 10 that Moses and the people were to remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. For these religious leaders and for many of us, those, those words are not clear enough. They're too vague. We need more definition. 
So these leaders sought to define the types of work you couldn't do on the Sabbath. They came up with 39 different categories of activity that constituted work that were not allowed on the Sabbath. Let me give you a couple of examples. One commentator noted the restriction of repairing things. Now that meant, for example, that you couldn't wear false teeth on the Sabbath. Want to know why? Because if they were to fall out, you would break the Sabbath by putting them back into your mouth. That was considered work on the Sabbath. Another commentator cited a law that kept a person from spitting. But not because it was gross or unsanitary. The rationale behind that law was this. If you spit and it lands in the dirt and it makes a little furrow, a little, a little indentation, that's considered plowing. And that's work. Now, oddly enough, the law said if you spit on a rock, that's okay because no work has been done. (laughs) Now, this is both laughable and ridiculous to our modern ears. but, But here's the real tragedy. Here's the blindness. It's not one Sabbath observance that earns you favor with God. He doesn't love us because we have faithfully observed the laws of the Sabbath or any other law for that matter. The truth is, because of our sin, we will never faithfully keep God's law. He loves us. He accepts us because Jesus perfectly obeyed the law Himself on our behalf. He did what Adam and Eve and their offspring, which includes us, could never do. At the cross, Jesus gave us His perfect record of righteousness while He received the condemnation our sins deserved. And because God loves us through Jesus, we obey Him out of gratitude, out of thanksgiving. We see His laws not as a means to justify ourselves to God. We see them as a grace to live in humble trust and obedience. We enter God's Sabbath rest not because we've earned it, but because Jesus has earned it for us. We need to have our Sabbath views reoriented. We need it so that we're not using it to try to gain God's favor, to try to grab hold of God's acceptance or love of us. No, we we want to enjoy it as a good gift from God. As you enjoy your Sabbath day today, remember that Jesus has won an eternal Sabbath for you. He has fought for your Sabbath rest and He has won. As you enjoy the restorative worship and rest and works of compassion and mercy this day, may you experience a foretaste of the eternal Sabbath that awaits us all. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, fix our eyes on this eternal Sabbath rest. On this day, when we celebrate the Sabbath day, give us hearts that long to worship You, to really be able to rest in You, knowing that we are secure in Your love because of what Christ Jesus has done for us. And would that love compel us to serve others with acts of mercy and compassion in our family 
in our neighborhood, in our city, that all would know of your greatness and your power and your might. For we pray this in the holy name of Jesus. Amen.